Good afternoon, and thank you all for coming along. I'm sure you'll join me in thanking the Arts Council of Great Britain for this marvellous festival. Um, I'm sure that uh, UA Fanthorpe needs no introduction from me, so without further ado, please enjoy the performance. R.V. Bailey will commence the reading. Thank you. Thank you. I think probably two warnings are better now. One is that I've decided I'd better call her Fanthorpe throughout, since you would never call William Wordsworth William, would you? So I'll try to. I may call her something else by mistake, but that is the poem on about. The other thing is another health warning, which is that these are not good poems. They were all written within a week or two of actually beginning to write. So they're very much practice pieces. Uh, but they illustrate the wit and the versatility and all that kind of competence that uh, comes later. And I hope you'll find them interesting. I wasn't there when she was born, but I understand her first words lying in the arms of the midwife were, <laughs> I am going to be a writer. Uh, right from the start, she wanted to be a writer, not a poet. Poets weren't much in those days. There were very few of them, and they were in any case called poetesses. And either they killed themselves or else they were slightly mad. So it wasn't an, uh, an appropriate job. Uh, so some of the poems that I read to begin with were written on the backs of envelopes, and they are not what you call proper poems. I will tell you when we get to the proper poems, so that you'll be able to listen with the proper respect. But just imagine, some of them are not even finished, but still. I'm going to begin with this one, which is such a poem. It was written on the back of an envelope in pencil, probably, and it wasn't finished, but it will begin to let you see what she was up to. It's, I've called it Love Song to Words. She was always in love with words. I suppose that what I feel for you is love, though it seems odd to say, I love you words, but I do love you. Long impossible words like eleemosynary or eschatology or inchoate, Tired, abused words like sick or can or funny. Double-jointed, ambiguous words that let you down like queer or tart. Neologistic words, technical words, deep and shallow words. Misspelled, mispronounced, mistreated, I love you all. I would like to set up a society for the prevention of cruelty to words. But words don't need it. They survive anything even the unregulated love of minor poets. <laughs> and the second one is another fragment, and it's simply called A High Wind. There was a high wind at my birth. All the signposts slewed sideways on their hinges. In the blizzard of infancy, I looked for love and found it in hard covers. In the adolescent whirlwind, I looked for learning. It was in other schools. 
Universities cowered in my stormy youth. Learning was terribly old. Well, she did, so it, she always had her nose in the book. Hard covers were where she was. Um, not doing the washing up and all the things her mother thought she ought to be doing. But she was, uh, because she read everything and absorbed learning very quickly and was keen to be a writer, even as a child. Uh, she got uh, into Oxford, which was nice, but uh, it was slightly disappointing. It was full of returned servicemen from the war and people who had real experience. Now, the thing about Fanthorpe, if you're going to be a, a writer, you all know this. You need to know, you need to have experience, whatever that is, and you need to be able to deal with people. And she felt she had neither. And in a sense, she didn't get it at Oxford because uh, she never really found that the person that she could talk to in quite, you know what frivolous creatures students are. I'll just read a couple of verses to show you. She enjoyed it and she loved the learning and loved the lectures, but uh, was lonely. She was also very shy. This is just an extract. Um, the bells of Mary Oxford, the misty autumn cobbles, the head that sang with rhyme, the calm loquacious evenings, I had them in my time. The dancing and the singing, the river in the rain, though they were lovely then to me, I didn't want again. For all this was a setting to grace a precious stone, and that I never found, and so I came and went alone. Well, after Oxford, what do you do? Still, she wanted to be a writer, she needed experience, and she needed to deal with people. In those days, you could be a nurse, or you could be a teacher, or you could be a typist, or you could get married, and that was about it. She decided that uh, experience would come in a school where she'd have to deal with people. And she was at the school for 16 years, and did very well, was very, you know what schools are like, you start as the lowest of the low, and then you get a bit older, and the terms go round, and you know, you become head of bicycles or something and gradually <laughs> get up the ladder. And she got up the ladder and became head of English, which was a big department. And of course, then there was no time uh, at the end of the day and no creative energy left. And gradually, 16 years later, she decided she had to leave. Now, if you leave, you have to have a reason. I want to be a writer is not a respectable reason. The other reason was I don't like the head. <laughs> uh, the head had been appointed not very many years before. And uh, she was the sort of head who decided she would do something about the school. And the thing you do with the school is extend it, put on a new wing. So this is a rather tough poem about headmistress. It's not a characteristic Fanthorpe voice, as you will realise. It's an angry doodle. That it happens to be 14 lines long, it's just by accident. 
headmistress. Ten years of too much power have fattened her. She's twice the woman who came, new and shy and ignorant, hoping to help us all. Since then, she's built and failed with girls and built some more. Bricks have a more effective span. Detractors will remember tempers lost, children misunderstood, teachers offended, but bricks, less sensitive, only recite biographies of those who put them there. And so her kingdom grows. No need to ask where's the naive enthusiast who came to do her job. She ate her long ago. <laughs> now builds her brick memorial to provide accommodation for a powerful corpse. It's not the fan thought we know and love, is it? Really? So she decided, having not, she had to find a reason for leaving. So she decided she would say she was going on to further study at Swansea, which she in fact did. But this is uh, one of the nicest poems. This is At Last Escape. Again, back of the envelope. It's called Gingerbread Maker. There is nothing to take the guilt off the gingerbread like setting up trade as a gingerbread maker. My gingerbread is English lit. I loved it devotedly until I forced it to keep me in coals, milk and bread. Then it grew a trifle stale. It wilted and sprouted mildew. Poor thing, it had enough reason. There was I droning on about patterns of imagery and scansion, worrying about pupils' behaviour in theatre foyers, preserving postcards of Dove Cottage, <laughs> listening to the late-night television programmes, making other people do the same, cracking dry little occupational jokes of quotations. Now I've cut loose. The gingerbread is golden all over again. I can gorge on it and never worry about its moral tone. <laughs> but still she needed a job. She had to do something. Still she wanted to write. We decided that in those days you could. Uh, two people could live on one salary. So it seemed a good idea that I should have the salary and she should do some poems. No, no, write, write. She wrote, she wrote in the evening. Reviews and articles and anthology, a terribly awful detective story. She, read, she wrote all the time. But she also had jobs and they were jobs as a temp. She stifled all her qualifications and typed with one finger and had jobs as a temp in Hoover's Complaints Department in Bristol and uh, Butler's Chemicals. Well, here she came into contact with a lot of different people, none of them teachers, and uh, she began to listen. Teachers talk, you'll have noticed. <laughs> now she realised that she, what she had to do was to listen. And this is a poem, just a doodle, still not a poem. We haven't got there yet. Uh, it's called Complaints Department, and it's about 
uh, Hoover's Complaints Department. The complainers came in this ear, and in this telephone she told the engineers, you see, so she was that sort of non-existent person. If I tell you that at the end of the week, the, they were all women, if I tell you that at the end of the week the boss came round and gave them a sweetie, you will realize <laughs> So this poem is called Complaints Department. Is that complaints, please, miss? I'm having trouble with my washing machine. It rattles when I turn it on, and then it shakes and leaks all over the kitchen floor. It started like this last Tuesday, and your engineer came, spent an hour here, and he said it'd be all right after. But it's not all right. How it is, miss, my dad's incontinent, and I have to keep his sheets washed for him. Also, my husband's a bit fussy, you know, dear, how they are. And the kids, they're always under my feet. I get worried about things. Will I be in when your engineer calls? Oh, yes, dear, I'm always in. Is that complaints, please? God, can't you do something for this harassed client of yours with her old dad who shakes and her husband who rattles and the kids who probably leak over the floor? Now even her washing machine has let her down. I can send her an engineer. What can you do? <laughs> well, after a certain number of temporary jobs, she wanted a permanent job, and she uh, got herself, I can't think how, into the job of uh, clerk receptionist at a neuropsychiatric hospital. She didn't notice the neuropsychiatric bit till later, <laughs> by which time it was too late. Uh, and she was appointed, and this is what she said. In the first month, at exactly 20 past one, in the middle of the lunch hour, on the 18th of April, 1974, she became a poet. It was entirely unexpected, completely unwilled. She said, the long boredom of slowly discovering who I was and what I could do was over. Poetry struck during my first month behind the desk. Poetry happened to me. Poetry hit me. She was, she said, catapulted into poetry. All I can add of definiteness is that because I was happy, I started to write, and I started to write because I was angry. Well, that first poem is not in this book. It was for St. Peter, and it's in the collected uh, works, so I won't read that one. But the hospital, you see, was a great move forward. She was a great eavesdropper, and there was a lot to listen to. She didn't, she wasn't anybody. Nobody took any notice of her at all. She had no authority. She could send them, direct the patients to the lavatory and the canteen and that sort of thing, but other than that, she was just sitting there in her glass cubicle and learning a lot. Her boss at that time, I will tell you, was a very awful woman. Unfortunately, I've forgotten her name. <laughs> but she was a great pain at Fanthorpe because she insisted that she wore, she couldn't wear trousers. And these were the days when people began to wear trousers. But you couldn't see the bottom part of her because she was, <laughs> she was hidden all the <laughs> So there you were. She listened to the patients. She listened to the people, the relations, and people who'd come in the waiting room. And she heard their talk, which was lively, friendly, loving, humane, 
on one side, and on the other side was the clinical language of the doctors. You have to have professional language, but there was such a gap. And she realized particularly that the language over here of the doctors uh, put the patients in their places. Uh, once she said, she realized they had a particularly nasty way of depriving patients of their dignity, allowing them only weasel words. Patients never said anything. They claimed or admitted or denied. Poor things, they didn't even know that that was what they were doing. So she was listening to these two voices, and out of that came the poetry. This is a characteristic Penthorpe poem. Uh, it's entertaining, I'm reading it because it's entertaining to begin with. And you all know if you read Penthorpe, that's where she gets you. She makes you laugh or she takes you into her confidence. And then the really important thing comes at the end and hits you below the heart. This is one of those, one of the first. It's called Inpatients, and it's really just three little cameos of what happened, and then the awful, awful lonely reality at the end, where she likens them to monks and anchorites. Inpatients. Like children, when it's sunny, they behave, play ball games on the grass, run the canteen without much obvious embezzlement, are regular with drugs, use no obscene words to alarm the matron, kick the cat only in private, go for jolly walks in healthy groups, return in time for tea, cooperate in therapeutic talks. Like children, when it's rainy, they are bad, forgetful of the needs of indoor plants, Ignore their visitors, smoke endlessly, confine their repartee to won't and shan't. Form tear-stained queues outside the nurse's room, drink gin at night and set fire to their sheets, abscond, break windows, commit suicide, involve us all in their infantile defeats. Like parents, we don't take them seriously. We shrug their tantrums off as children's play. We speak to them in kindergarten tones, deaf to the insult under all we say. And when they mimic adult games and kiss and talk of marriage, we applaud, how nice, joyfully yoking two unstable minds, our wedding gift, a birth control device. Like anchorites, they guard their silent cells devoted to the rituals of despair. The blood-soaked stone walls are inviolable and laymen cannot penetrate to share the vigil these abandoned saints must bear who straddle the irreconcilable vault of mankind in our hygienic air and gasp their litanies to our dry bells. How simple as you would realise what always on the side of the patient. She saw herself, she'd seen herself in positions of great power in the school. Fine. She was in a position of no power at all. And this is a poem about how she sees herself. It's the perspective of the flea who watches the antics of the pompous, who is never noticed. Song of the flea. My calling is to study the soft underbelly of top dogs. Not pedigreed hounds in ornate kennels, 
patrons of well-carved bones, but mongrels who have made it up the administrative ladder, <laughs> whose greed, conceit, and fear it is my calling to calculate. I might have been such a bitch myself, posturing impressively, observed with cool enjoyment by my inferiors, but I choose humble angles, since the perspective of the dust, of the dust is accurate. <laughs> Two more, I think. This is another poem again about the patients. Uh, the patients, I mean, it was a very strange hospital. When you went into the waiting room, uh, they, it was terribly ambiguous. There was a great notice saying, we prefer you not to smoke. <laughs> so there's a sort of, you know, this sort of elision between reality and, and real, you know. And on the wall in the waiting room was a lovely picture. I can't now remember whether it was cross-stitch or quite what it was now. Uh, but again, it begins jauntily and ends with awful realism. Problem picture. No doubt about it, it's a very clever picture, just right for outpatients. You see, if you know anything about butterflies, you can work out what sort she's put in. One blue, seven reddish brown, and two little tiddlers, not so easy to spot, sitting on the buttercup at the bottom. Alternatively, if you like flowers, you can puzzle them out for yourself. There's a poppy, definitely, and blue vetch, and this buttercup, and a bit of honeysuckle, and a, a pink flower that I don't recognise, and in the middle, what looks like apple blossom, with a forget-me-not growing out of its ear, what you might call a problem picture, I suppose. The outpatients love it. First, there's the fun of identi identifying the flowers and things. And when they've done that, they still haven't finished. It's so lifelike, they say. It can't be a painting, can it? The butterflies must be real. Look at the scales on their wings. Then somebody else pipes up. Well, no, I think you're wrong. This is a painting. It's tapestry. Just look at the texture of that stalk. Sometimes I contemplate a notice explaining everything and adding, this picture was painted by Mrs. D. Bullock, part-time clerk. It is not anything special. <laughs> but then I remember that patients come to this hospital to be puzzled out themselves, and that not anything special is exactly what they want to be, too. Uh, the top doctor uh, was Scott, a little round Scott. She really loved him, but he was committed to his work. And even when he was on holiday, he saw himself as a, a fighter, as a soldier. Though he went off to the Highlands, as Scots people do, and uh, even, in his, even in his holidays, he was fighting enemies. It's called Consultant's Holiday. His enemies, death, suicide, the slow, phlegmatic non-existence of despair, 
obsession's endless wood of private fears. His soldiers, bored, promiscuous, with low morale and bad feet, not the type to share heroic vigils on the mind's frontiers. His weapons, therapy of various sorts, drugs, treatment, hobbies. Such arms sometimes explode and injure his own men. His allies, friendly tribes whose dullness thwarts elaborate manoeuvres with alarms of missing cats and time for tea again. His leaves spent fighting on a different front, tracking down distance, loneliness and cold in their Scots fastnesses. These he traps and kills. But when time's up, returns to his own hunt to find his side demoralised and old, despair and death glowing like daffodils. Here is a nice one to cheer you up. It's my last poem. And it's, I'm reading it. I suppose it's my favourite poem because it is fanful right the way through. Uh, the pedantic queries, the details about birds, the rabbiting on. <laughs> and it ends with the utterly simple, very modest truth. And it's uh, based on the passage in the Bible where the disciples are rather discouraged and anxious and Jesus tries to cheer them up. You will know, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? Fear ye not, therefore ye are more value than many sparrows. An honest inquiry. Excuse me, I hope you don't mind, but how many exactly? I mean, many is not exactly a precise word, is it? So would you be thinking of two or ten? Or even twenty, maybe? Because when you think of the number of clutches in a year, three, say, or say five at a time, that adds up to quite a lot, you must admit. On the other hand, I like sparrows. Reliable type, always there. Not like the moody migrants, and always cheerful or give that impression, fossicking around in the dust, drinking, tearing bits of moss off roofs. Venus's birds, you know, though perhaps you don't want to know about that. <laughs> anyway, friendly citizens, what makes you think I could be worth even one of them? Thank you. Thank you, Rosie. A wonderful reading. It's a privilege to take part in this event. Reading UA Fanthorpe's work on the page is always a pleasure. Reading it aloud, I discover, is a joy. I first heard Ursula read in the Virago Bookshop in London in the 1980s. Her final poem was one which I'm sure many of you know, Rising Damp. It begins with the little lost rivers of London. It ends with a plunge of such dark gravity that I sat 
in that bright bookshop, thinking that such wise authority was exemplary in a poet. Like Ursula, I live in Gloucestershire. Over the years, I've heard many stories of Ursula's generous help to local poetry events, for which she asked neither fee nor publicity. I think that such kindness, too, is exemplary. Kind amusement, fortunately, was Ursula's reaction when I confessed to her that I often misremembered her first name as Una. This, I explained, came from the initials beneath her poems, U-A. But Una, I realise, also comes from my reading long ago of Edmund Spencer's epic poem, The Fairy Queen. There, Una represents the church, truth, and much more. In my mind, the poem has become a myth, like one of the stories in Ursula's own work. It is a place of fearful forests, of struggles to survive, of faith, of integrity, and of daily hard-won heroism. Ursula Fanthorpe's writing, I believe, is deeply rooted in these qualities. Her poems are also sharply funny. Here is a short opening piece, clearly written during her years with the NHS. It is called Job Description, Poet. A cheap art. All you need is something to write on and with. In my case, yesterday's clinic list, a hospital biro. You don't need a north light, clay, scored paper, silence, sympathy. You can do it wherever you are. You don't need freedom or friends or fellow artists to perform what you create. You are surrounded by the subject, life. The tools of this trade are common property. Five senses, one brain, one heart, and words, words, words. That there are problems, I don't deny. Inner emptiness, solitude, despair. But remember, poetry is a cheap art. You can't expect to get anything for nothing. <laughs> what a reader may expect from UA Fanthorpe's art is lasting insight, even when the details of a poem reflect a particular period. Patience Strong was an immensely popular magazine and calendar poet in my youth. Then, as Fanthorpe says, everyone knew her name. I doubt if my daughter's generation does, but they would know the names of poets who have sold millions of copies of their poetry collections after posting their poems on Instagram. The work of these writers is sometimes derided by more traditional commentators on poetry. But I think that older published poets like me need to ask ourselves why our work does not reach or carry meaning to these new and eager readers. UA Fanthorpe asks a similar question far more eloquently in one of her later poems. Patience Strong. Everyone knows her name. 
trite calendars of rose-nooked cottages or winding ways display her sentiments in homespun verse disguised as prose. She has her tiny niche in women's magazines too, tucked away among the recipes or near the end of some perennial cereal. Her theme always the same. Rain falls in every life, but rainbows, bluebirds, spring, babies, or God lift up our hearts. No doubt such rubbish sells. She must be feathering her ingle nook. Genuine poets seldom coin the stuff, nor do they flaunt such aptly bogus names. Their message is oblique. It doesn't fit a pocket diary's page, nor does it pay. One day, in epileptic outpatients, a working man, a fellow in his fifties, was feeling bad. I brought a cup of tea. He talked about his family and job. His dad was in the ambulance brigade. He hoped to join, but being epileptic, they wouldn't have him. Naturally, he said, with my disease, I'd be a handicap, but I'd have liked to help. He sucked his tea, then from some special inner pocket, brought a booklet muffled up in cellophane and wrapped it gently, opened at a page. Characteristic cottage garden, seen through chintzy casement windows. Underneath, some cosy musing in the usual vein. And see, he said, this is what keeps me going. English poets, I fear, are often less able than their US counterparts to write powerfully about one element of our lives which keeps us going, work. UA Fanthorpe is a glorious exception. Here is her light-footed and typically humble summary of what I suspect was a very distinguished teaching career. I speak with informed admiration as I come from a family of fine teachers. The poem is called Misunderstood. I devoted a long and arduous youth to the English poets, particularly Wordsworth, Marvell and Chaucer. I devoted a long and serious teaching career to the instruction of English girlhood, dealing particularly with Shakespeare, Milton and, of course, Chaucer. My quieter moments such of them as I valued, I devoted to the Elliot family, Thomas and George, and of course, Chaucer. So I resent it a little when new acquaintances say to me, oh, an English teacher, how dreadful. You'll be shocked at my spelling. I never thought of correcting Chaucer's. <laughs> Even writing about UA Fanthorpe's work makes her reader more scrupulous. I did remark carefully that her poems are sharply humorous. Her poetry is remarkable in showing with intelligence and compassion how badly people may be treated if they're of low status 
in large organisations. But her worms may turn. Here is somebody we have all met. We may have met her today. The receptionist. I'm the receptionist. I am an ear that listens on the phone, a hand that makes appointments in the book. I am a room where you can pick and poke and use my phone, my scissors and my paper. I am nothing. I listen and I mark, but to no end. Mistakes are mine, but nothing that's well done by me is ever noticed. To be nothing has its own consolations. Mostly, I am happy. But sometimes, ear and hand and willing feet and empty room know they are all one body and intermesh. And I am Cerberus, guardian of hell. Beware of me. I bite. <laughs> In the next poem, Yue Fanthorpe is bitingly critical of herself, but she pulls off one of the most difficult feats in poetry, writing about family, with clear eyes and judiciously selected background for the benefit of strangers. Yet the warmth of affection enters the poem like a flood, fittingly, as you will hear, given its subject. This longer poem takes us into choppy waters. Beware. The poem is called Infidelity. Our father loved small boats. His ten-foot dinghy was clinker-built, had ocean-going oars and a rare Swedish outboard. Every winter, well-greased palms tended her. And every summer, she took our father up to Teddington and back again, a distance of a mile. Our father was a heavy man, a judge, a barrister, a man of substance. When he boarded her, the dinghy nearly foundered. We blushed for him and scrambled the bows, but childish bones couldn't redress his weight. Our father loved the manners of the river. Port to port, he would teach us and give way. This sweet correctness never won him credit with Tiddler, the fat waterman who ruled the mooring raft. All day he brooded there, brown shirtless, with his stomach sticking far out in contempt, rescuing novices with casual boat hook. Rescuing father, too. When, up at Teddington, his Swede once more betrayed him. Flicking through the waves, Tiddler would come, contempt apparent in the angle of his stomach. And with one negligent pull of greasy twine, he'd rouse a faithless Swede, then skim back to his raft, leaving our father to toil slowly back, publicly shamed. Or so we felt, our father wooed Tiddler ceaselessly with cigarettes and tactful tips, but never won his heart. We 
like the Swede, were tiddlers and not his. Children and outboards reverence the strong, despise the meek. Dear father, only now I understand how strong you were to bow so humbly to the elementary skill Tiddler possessed. And he, perhaps, was dumb to say how proud he was of knowing you. Did he perform so well to justify your praise? I'll never know. The boat is sold and you are dead. And Tiddler, if he lives, must need his shirt by now. All I have left is the sad taste of treason in my mouth and a dislike of boat hooks. <laughs> One of the pleasures in reading a poet's early work is the discovery of poems whose strengths are not those usually associated with the poet's later, much better known writing. Readers of UA Fanthorpe's later poems might not expect to read a swiftly flowing, intense, rhymed ballad. But here is that ballad, a celebration of the Greek poet Sappho. Her work survives, as Fanthorpe stresses, almost entirely in fragments, some of them found in rubbish heaps near the Egyptian town of Oxywinkus. The poem is called For Sappho. Your mouth spoke fire. Aegean seas weren't deep enough to put you out. You shone like suns. The isles of Greece basked in your fierce poetic drought. Death banked you down, but you had left bonfires behind you. And they flamed across the hilltops of the world, signalling poetry untamed. Cool clerics thought your fires unfit and quench them with a holy chill. Some few ambiguous escaped and blithely burned their readers still. Late scholars groveling in ash at Oxyrhynchus found a few cindery fragments. By their heat, they knew that these were sparks of you. Words that had scorched were scorched themselves, torn into strips for rubbish piles, or wadded in the carcasses of stuffed Egyptian crocodiles. What conflagration flamed in you that such a fieriness still lingers? We breathe upon these scraps of ash and find that they have burned our fingers. One of the last poems I would like to read to you belongs not to flame, but to water. It is Rising Damp, the poem which I heard Ursula read half a lifetime ago. I cannot match her reading. I can mention that the rivers of the poem's opening, the rivers which, although hidden, belong to the living, are replaced by the great classical rivers of the dead. The word Magogs refers to an ancient tradition of giants. Rising damp. At our feet, 
they lie low, the little fervent underground rivers of London. Ephra, Graveney, Falcon, Quaggy, Wandle, Walbrook, Tyburn, Fleet, whose names are disfigured, frayed, effaced. These are the magogs that chewed the clay to the basin that London nestles in. These are the currents that chiseled the city, that washed the clothes and turned the mills, where children drank and salmon swam and wells were holy. They have gone under, boxed like the magician's assistant, buried alive in earth, forgotten like the dead. They return spectrally after heavy rain, confounding suburban gardens. They infiltrate chronic bronchitis statistics. A silken slur haunts dwellings by shrouded watercourses and is taken for the footing of the dead. Being of our world, they will return. Westbourne, caged at Sloane Square, will jack from his box. Will deluge cellars, detonate manholes, plant effluent on our faces, sink the city. Ephra, Graveney, Falcon, Quaggy, Wandle, Walbrook, Tyburn, Fleet. It is the other rivers that lie lower that touches only in dreams that never surface. We feel their tug as a dowser's rod bends to the source below. Phlegathon, Acheron, Lethe, stick. But I feel I should not end with darkness, but with a pair of short poems with a lighter touch. It is part of the generosity of UA Fanthorpe's work that any reader may find a corner, a subject, which particularly appeals to them. I pounced happily upon two of Ursula's poems which refer to animals. But in this penultimate poem, in a canny balance of mammal and metaphor, the animal is never named. All we know from the title is that this beloved pet is liable to be sent to boarding kennels. Here we lodge love when it grows inconvenient. Here behind bars it will wait for us while we go away for the weekend or run up to London for a round of theatres or fly off on our summer holidays or pursue any other occupation where love gets in the way. Love will wait till we come back. Being behind bars, it hasn't much choice. It will be fed, exercised, kept warm, preserved from all the dangers incident upon loving and being free. In fact, when we see it again, love will have put on weight. When it sees us, love will leap in such an agony of joy as to spoil completely in retrospect all the pleasure that we had on holiday without it. <laughs> so here, finally, is a companion animal to the eager dog, I think, of the last poem. 
This creature is poised and shrewd, very like the poem in which it appears. But unlike her animal subject, Ursula Fanthorpe's final vision is compassionate. My French, I'm sure, is much inferior to hers, but I will do my best with the title of the last of her poems, which I've had the privilege of choosing for you. Rite de passage. Cats aren't adolescent. No time in their nine lives when they're not calm, infinitely purposeful, feline. They know what to be, sleepy, delightful kittens, next minute, warmly pregnant, or yodeling round dustbins for mates. No embarrassing interregnum where they don't know where to put their legs or what to do with their sexual urges. Cats always know. How different we make it for our young who can't be contented with shrews, balls of string or milk and find it so difficult to be human. Thank you. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you.